You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. You can read or follow along. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged them, charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, we do have Redemption Kids this morning, so if that serves you, Redemption Kids for ages 2 to 4 and then 5 to 9. Just one note as you're going, uh, our room has changed. This might be a permanent fixture. Actually, I hope so. And so you're going to go down the hallway uh, past Robin, and then you'll take a left. It'll be on the left-hand side. You'll see the banners down there. Uh, it's a little bit bigger room, a brighter room. It's got carpet already in there, so you don't have the, the hard floor. And uh, just kind of as an FYI, and we'll, we'll get into this during the family meeting, I was introduced to the principal this morning, great guy. It's going to be a fantastic partnership. He said we could use their outdoor class. No one's going to do that. No fool is going to use that today. <laughs> but it's just, you know, you can see it from the, throughout the window there. So um, we're grateful for that. So if you're staying in, make sure you grab your kids' sermon notes and the totes. Well, due to uh, our family meeting after church, I will preach a sh- shorter sermon, and as my wife always reminds me, no one ever complained about a short sermon. So uh, here we are this morning. <laughs> Just a, a little funny story. One time we were still in the park, right, during 2020, and it was a hot, sunny day, and uh, I had my iPad, and it was like the one time where I did not use my notes. And the printer wasn't working or something. I'll just preach from my iPad. And here I am preaching. And like 10 minutes into the sermon, the iPad, it, uh, the sun affected it. It just cut out. So all, my sermon, just gone. Now one would think, oh, he's a pastor. He's just going to grab his Bible and just kind of walk through the text that way. Well, I had given my Bible to Joshua because <laughs> he, he prayed and, and read Scripture that particular morning. And we were up, I was up kind of up on that like little... Uh, uh, what do you call it, a deck or whatever, and everyone was out. And he was like, you know, 40 feet away. And then maybe I would grab my phone, pull it out there. Well, it was back in the pavilion. So, like, I was painstakingly just like, oh. It was the shortest sermon ever. And everyone noticed, too, by the way. You might not remember that. But like, oh, wow, great sermon. It was only like 25 minutes. <laughs> and everyone rejoiced. That had nothing to do with today. That was just a fun story. Uh, You saw today's text. It's Matthew 16. It's a a well-known text, and I'm just going to tell you right now, 
I'm not getting into all the details of what we could with this particular text. I mean, we could walk through church history and, and talk about how different denominations and faith traditions have used this text to justify you know, what their understanding of the church. Not going to get into that today. Uh, that's why it's a shorter, shorter sermon. Uh, but I do want us to focus on some of the particulars of this text that are actually going to lead us, hopefully, well into our, our family meeting this morning. So I'm going to pray for God's help, um, and then we'll get into Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. It's going to be, hopefully, a, quite an encouragement for us as a church body. So let's, let's pray. Father, I need your help this morning, uh, through and through. Help me to be faithful to what you've already said, and pray for my friends that are in front of me. Lord, in the power of the Spirit, may they receive what you have already spoken. And help us to think well about how to live out practically. Just as Andy prayed earlier, Lord, pray and affirm. Help us to love each other practically. And I pray that as a church body, uh, we would do that. So teach us this morning, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start by presenting you with a question. Why does the church exist? That's the question. Now, there are multiple answers to the question, and depending on if we're talking about the universal church or like a local church, answers are going to be quite nuanced. For the sake of this sermon, I want to ask, why does this local church exist? The question addresses purpose, and purpose is going to drive function. At the end of the day, that's what the question's getting at. Why do you exist? What's the purpose of this particular local church? And then from that, it's like, okay, now what do we do? For example, if you exist to work in a factory to make widgets, then you will functionally make widgets. If if you exist as a person to play basketball, then daily activities will revolve around like the game of basketball. As I was pondering this question leading up to today, it occurred to me that local churches functionally answer this question in many different ways. It's not not a criticism, just an observation. Here's what I mean. A church might exist, quote, for the glory of God. And I would say, yes and amen. Turn to my right. For the glory of God is on a banner in our church. But here is where the uh, proverbial rubber meets the road. If a church says they exist for the glory of God, does it function in such a way that upholds the statement? Tracking? If I tell you that I exist to play basketball, to go back to that, is my behavior reflecting that purpose? Dare I, dare I say, one of the greatest dangers of local churches, and it is certainly a danger we need to think about as a local church, as Redemption Hill Church, is that a, that a Christian purpose statement is made, but functionally the church is playing from a different set of sheet music, right? It's like the church statement says, we exist to play jazz music, but everyone is playing rock and roll. There's a wide gap between Miles Davis and Zed, Le- Zed Leplin. Can I say it right? Led Zeppelin. <laughs> so as we look at today's passage, I want you to remember the question, why does Redemption Hill Church exist? Leading up to our passage, 
in Matthew 16. We, we read about religious leaders who presumably uh, cited the Shema. Hear, O God, the Lord our God, he is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength from Deuteronomy 6. Right? These are religious leaders who were leading their congregations like in the synagogue. They were giving back to God at least 10% and doing all the right things. However, something was amiss. Jesus denounces the religious leaders of his day. Now the question is why? In Matthew 16, verses 1-4, to Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for being unable to rightly interpret the Scriptures. Never mind the fact that the Pharisees were constantly trying to uh, present Jesus with gotcha questions. <laughs> like, we ask him this question, maybe he'll trip up and we can accuse him of something. It's a constant pattern throughout the Gospels. And then in the following story leading up to verse 13, Jesus warns his disciples once again about the teachings of the Pharisees. Jesus compares the teachings of the Pharisees to leaven that is in a bread. When you bake the bread, the leaven allows it to grow slowly. The teachings of the Pharisees is the same. It slowly rises. And because it grows slowly, you might not see the effects of their teaching until it's too late. If we take a snapshot of the Pharisees in all four Gospels, it is clear that their purpose and function were misguided. The function, their function, might have been consistent with their purpose, perhaps, but in all the wrong ways. Or the religious leaders were telling the people to do one thing, and they would do something entirely different. Jesus was calling out the unfaithfulness of the religious leaders who were the authorities in their local church. So that's the context that leads us up to verse 13. Jesus is seeing this. He's engaging the Pharisees. He's calling them out. And then Jesus is going to say, now this is how it's done. This is how it's done. This is what the church is going to be, and this is what the church is going to do. Verse 13 to verse 20 of Matthew 16, it's a well-known passage for various reasons, like I, I had mentioned. But from it, I just want you to see the purpose and function of this church from this text. Verses 13 to 20 do not tell us everything, but it certainly points us into the right direction. So I'm going to divide this passage into three headings. If you're a note taker, this is going to help out. We have some questions that are being asked. That's going to be the first thing we're going to engage. And there are some answers from the questions and then the implications. The questions, the answers, the implications. It's a simple outline, but hopefully the simplicity will lead to clarity. Let's read the questions in context. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? The first question from Jesus seems to be unsolicited, right? It's, the, it's a theological question. Jesus wants to know if his disciples know their Bible. I had so much fun thinking about this because <laughs> it's a great question. 
The question on the table is, who is the Son of Man? Now, if you want the answer to the question, you actually have to go back to the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel. In Daniel 7, we read this. If you were to open your Bible, the heading of this particular passage might say, Son of Man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, there's that language there, the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom to all peoples, nations, languages should, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting dominion, excuse me, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now think about this. Daniel is prophesying this in a time period where, his, where God's people were being persecuted and they were exiled out of their land. Now, most of the book of Daniel is narrative, kind of reads like, a, like the book of Acts perhaps, right? But in chapter 7, the gear shifts to apocalyptic, much like the book of Revelation and how Revelation reads. Daniel goes from speaking about his present circumstances to acting like a prophet, speaking like a prophet. He is a prophet. And in this passage, we read about someone human and yet divine. In Daniel 7, we read about someone who will, who will face the serpent and this time crush the serpent. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 will prove to be victorious over sin and evil, unlike Adam and Eve in the garden. The Son of Man has been around for all eternity. That's what ancient of days means. Not only is the Son of Man human and divine, but he is to serve like a king. He is a king over an everlasting kingdom. So this is the context of the first question from Jesus. And it appears his disciples are picking up what he's putting down. They know the importance of the question. Therefore, a few answers are thrown out, right? Some say that Jesus is, or excuse me, that the Son of Man is John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, right? That's what the people are saying. So for hundreds, hundreds of years, religious Jews have been trying to answer that particular question. They're reading Daniel 7, they're like, who is the Son of Man? Who could possibly be human and divine and be a king over an eternal kingdom? Jesus asks the first question to lead them to the next question. That's what I love about Jesus. I mean, just read about his life in the Gospels. He's always got a plan. He's leading us somewhere. Jesus is not concerned about the speculation of the populace, but he's concerned about the mind and the hearts of his disciples. He pivots to ask, who do you say that I am? I mean, I could ask that question to all of us this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a mere man? A good teacher? A guy who walked the earth, who had a huge following, died, and was just buried in the ground? Who do you say that Jesus is? And notice, he makes no mention here of the Son of Man. He wants to know what they believe about him. Simon 
Peter blurts out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I love Peter. It's like so impulsive. He's like, I know, I know, I know. He's the guy in Sunday school. He's like, I got the answer. Peter connects the dots between Daniel 7 and the promised and long-awaited Messiah. Peter's response is remarkable on two accounts. First, Christ means Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is the one who had come to restore the kingdom. Without a doubt, Peter had Daniel 7 on the brain, right? Second, Peter strengthens his understanding of Jesus, not by calling him the Son of Man, although that would have been a very appropriate response from Peter. But what does he say? You are the Son of the living God. Here's an interesting tidbit. Jesus never calls himself Christ in the Gospels. You think people call him Christ. But Jesus does call himself Son of Man. And I would argue that is a much more significant and rich title because of what we see in Daniel 7. I would also add, he calls himself later in the Gospel of Matthew when he's in front of the, front of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He calls himself, I am. These are titles packed with meaning and significance. So Peter blurts this, blurts this out. And if the Pharisees were in earshot of Peter, he, he would have been stoned. What Peter said would have been him writing a death sentence for himself. And leave it to Peter, bold and again perhaps impulsive, to say the quiet part out loud. You are the son of the living God. I think it's worth pausing to see that the answer to why we exist is beginning to take shape here. If Jesus Christ is the Ancient of Days, if he is the Son of God and Son of Man, then our purpose is directly tied to a transcendent person. It would be foolish to come to any other conclusion. Now, here's the heart and head check for all Christians. It's easy, I know this from personal experience, to become apathetic. It's easy to forget that the foundation of our purpose is Jesus Christ. Like we get so, again, I'll talk to, I just preach to myself, we get so caught up in the doing, we forget why we're doing it at all and who we're doing it for. Consider the house that you live in. You see the structure of your house. You, you know the things that are in the house, the things that were built. It might be a big and beautiful house, but the house crumbles without a solid foundation. If the purpose of your existence is not directly tied to Christ, then everything that is being built will crumble. We can't forget. We must always remember. And this is especially true for the local church. Listen to what Jesus says to Peter. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood meaning like in his own will, right? In his own ability. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So it looks like the Holy Spirit has been at work in Peter. Like he graduated from the 12th grade. He's getting it, right? 
but his answer also reveals his purpose. Peter is going to be used by God to build the church. I I want you to notice the pronouns here. The church does not belong to Peter. It belongs to Christ. Jesus says, this is my church. My church. The church does not belong to a pastor, elder board, or deacons. It belongs to Christ. As some of you know, Jesus has been a bit playful in his response to Peter, right? The name for Peter means rock, and both words have the same Greek word, Petros. Petros means rock. Petros means Peter. The primary point is that Jesus will be the foundation of something new. The church. It is his, as we say in the Greek, his ekklesia. It's his. We, along with Peter, have the privilege to be a part of what God is building. What I'm about to say should should not be unexpected. The saints of Redemption Hill, especially Sean Powers and, and Rob Lane as elders, must constantly be reminded about who owns this church. Jesus is the foundation, not any mere person. We and many of you serving in various ways are used by God to build the church. But this church belongs to Christ. Again, maybe I'm moving into family meeting mode, but you know one of my long-term goals, and I'll talk about this in October, is that I'll die and this church continues to chug along for the glory of God. Not my church. Not mine. I had the passing thought uh, that if I could take a DeLorean, and like if you know Back to the Future, you get the reference, right? Like a time machine, but it's a cool car. If I could take a DeLorean back to around 2017, I might rename the church Christ Church. And I think you get what I'm saying, right? Christ, it's Christ's church. But I, I do like redemption. It gets us to the same point. <laughs> Allow me to sum up how the purpose of Redemption Hill is stated in light of what we've seen thus far in Matthew 16. On several of our church banners, we read, all of Christ, for all of life, for all of the Des Moines metro. Now, I pray that these are not empty words, but are our foundation to why we exist. The moment Christ ceases to be the foundation of of this local church is the moment we pack it up and we just move on with life. Read with me verses 18 and 19, where we begin to see the function following the purpose. Jesus continuing to speak to Peter, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We'll talk about that in verse 18. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosened in heaven. I will take you to another passage in Matthew to show you more of the function of the church, but I want you to see at least two functions from this particular passage. The first function is to be a part of the fight between good and evil. There's a battle 
between heaven and hell. It's a battle for souls. The question raised from verse 18 is, is the church on the offensive or the defensive? Right? Is the devil attacking the church? Or do we read that the church is a place where the devil will not prevail and therefore the church will advance against evil? And I think the answer when you take the whole scope of Scripture in view, is both. The church, this local church, must be a place where you and others can come and be safe. You can come with your sin to be reminded of the forgiveness through Christ. You come here to be strengthened, to face trials and temptations. You come to this local church for help and for healing. You come here to cry because of the funeral, and you come here to rejoice because of the wedding. You come here to wrestle with God. You come here knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted and he meets you. So yes, the church is a place where we gather to allow God the Holy Spirit to meet us and to show us more of Christ. But the church is also on the offensive It's like watching football. They got the ball, they're on the 20-yard line, and they're going for the goal line. We're on the offensive. I want you to notice from our text that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Sometimes we get that, um, that picture mixed up in our mind as if the gates belong to the church. And we're keeping we're keeping out hell, right? But no, it's actually the gates of hell, and those gates will not prevail. Gates are used to keep people out, yet Christ's church will overcome the gates of hell. There's a, there's a lot of speculation about why, what this really means, but at the very least, we can say that the church is victorious over the devil and hell because of Christ, the Son of Man. It seems to me that verse 19 reinforces the ability of the church to function out of purpose. There's a connection we see also between between heaven and the church on earth. What God can do in heaven can be done on earth. For example, is a great example. God forgives. And here on earth, we forgive. That's just John 20 verses uh, 23. Christians, Christians within Christ's church are not God, but we are entrusted by God to fulfill God's mission here on earth. And this leads me to Matthew 28, where the function of the church is crystal clear. It's another familiar passage. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. All authority has been given to Jesus Now read verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, this is simply amazing, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Matthew 16, Jesus makes the point that he is passing on the keys of the kingdom to Peter. Now that's the debated part that we're not getting into today. But the statement by Christ is further developed in Matthew 28. The authority entrusted by the Father to the Son is now being passed along to those who are the church and all the people who make up the church. 
What are we to do? The answer is to make disciples of all nations. It's that simple. We tend to complicate things, uh, myself included. I've got to read that latest, greatest missions book or church planning, church growth book. All that's out there. You go to Amazon.com and find a million books on that topic. But the answer of what we do as a church is actually quite simple. Make disciples of all nations. When people profess faith in Christ, they are to be baptized and taught. Baptism is a declaration of a Christian's belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Romans 6. And a Christian's faith does not settle with profession and baptism, but all Christians continue to learn about God's commands and God's ways. It is through the local church that all of this is supposed to function. And I'm not against Bible studies outside the local church. I'm not against students going to seminary to learn, right? But we see the, the, the importance of the local church stated. It is through the local church where all this is supposed to function. Again, the function flows from the reason of why we exist. We exist for Christ and to make him known. Therefore, our function needs to map on to purpose. There are two primary ways in which the church fulfills its purpose through function. In some respects, Matthew 18 naturally flows out of Matthew 16. The church exists, I've already kind of mentioned it, to evangelize the nations and then disciple the nations. And I want to talk, about, talk briefly about both. For the majority of Christian history, evangelism was local. It was local because the means of traveling a long distance did not exist. I'm not suggesting that bold and courageous Christians did not travel a long distance to evangelize a nation. That's not what I'm saying. After the ascension of Jesus Christ, many Christians were scattered. Many traveled toward Western Europe, what we now know to be Western Europe. Some traveled to places like India. In particular, it is speculated, and I think there's good reason to believe that Thomas, doubting Thomas, went to India. Right now in India, you can find Thomas Christians. So I'm, not a, I'm, I'm for that, right? But the majority of Christians throughout history evangelized the people that were right in front of them. Right? Christian parents evangelized their children. We affectionately call this catechizing our children. Christians witnessed in the marketplaces and at the well where they were gathering water. Christians are called to meet the physical needs of the poor while also meeting spiritual needs. Of the poor. Evangelizing the nations is someone being called to a country that is predominantly that predominantly practices Islam, and it is also Bob sitting across from Steve at the coffee shop explaining that Christ is the Son of Man and the Son of God who takes away the sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Bob tells Steve that if if he continues to pursue the worthless idols of this world, he will be empty and he needs to surrender to Christ. I'm kind of beating a drum here, but I know I've said this before, but, and I'm not against this. We don't necessarily need like an evangelism pastor because God has entrusted the church. I have no issue with that per se. But we're all called to be sharing the gospel to make disciples. 
The second function of the church is discipleship. After the Lord's, go back to Steve and Bob here. After the Lord saves Steve, Bob takes Steve to church to show him what costly discipleship looks like. It is not enough to call Jesus Savior. He has to be Lord. And all Christians are called to bow down to the Lord of the universe. Discipleship is the process of a person becoming more and more like Christ. And the church is a place that cultivates ongoing discipleship. Or it should be a place that cultivates ongoing discipleship. Discipleship is not only a moment, but a series of moments, days, weeks, months, years, until you die or the Lord Jesus returns. The role of the church, I think, is to cultivate formal and informal moments of discipleship. But it does not matter if discipleship is formal or informal. The culture of the church is for one person or a group of people to come alongside one person or a group of people with the end goal of them becoming more and more like Christ. Discipleship is also the gray hairs. I've got a few gray hairs. I've got a couple coming in myself. Looking at the generation behind them and being like, I have a little bit of wisdom and experience. I've walked this life. Now I'm going to invest into you. That's discipleship. Succinctly stated, we exist to make disciples as a church and to grow disciples. It is also parents helping their children navigate the world. That's discipleship. It is simply people being with other people in the church who are willing to serve one another to become more like Christ. So why does Redemption Hill Church exist? The answer is twofold. With Jesus Christ as the foundation, that's what this church is built upon. We exist to proclaim the gospel in word and deed. We exist to see Christians grow in the grace of the gospel. I hope, I hope that what's being done here and what will continue to become is a culture of evangelism and discipleship, that that will continue to grow as we stay focused like a laser, focused on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of Man that we read about in Daniel 7. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.